Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Uh, but before uh, proceeding to today's discussion, I wanted to mention that uh, my host here, PRN.FM, is having a bit of a fundraising push. Uh, this is the first time they've asked me to uh, give a little plug to them. I've been with PRN for eight years, and I've always enjoyed it. It was really important to, to me when I decided to do a podcast that I w wanted to be part of a collective. Um, and even if I'm not necessarily listening to every show on PRN, uh, they've been terrific. And I like the attempt to bring some of the spirit of live alternative radio, uh, talk show heavy alternative radio call-in shows and all um, to the world of podcasting and online streaming. So I urge you to go check out uh, prn.fm slash donate subscribe uh, and donate to Progressive Voices, uh, including the folks who've helped make Expanding Mind available over the last eight years or so. Uh, moving on, uh, I just spent the weekend at uh, the Cultural and Political Perspectives on Psychedelic Science Conference. Uh, this was held at CIIS here in San Francisco and sponsored in part by their East-West Psychology Program and also by Shakruna, which is a website you should be aware of if you're interested in intelligent reflections on psychedelic science, psychedelic culture from academics and independent uh, research researchers. Uh, one of the heads of Shakruna, Bia Labache, has been on Expanding Mind a number of months ago, and she organized this uh, conference, which was really quite wonderful. It was uh, challenging, difficult. A lot of political issues were raised. Sometimes there was some heated exchanges um, it, yet it also gave me the sense of the resilience of the psychedelic community, if we can even speak of a psychedelic community more, but at least the community that was gathered there, uh, to be able to take some uh, heavy discussions about social justice, about capitalism, about, you know, basically all the uh, important issues that we're dealing with these days, which as psychedelic science becomes more mainstream, inevitably begin to show up within psychedelic science. So the strange little underground world that first raised me uh, in this kind of dis discourse space has definitely uh, graduated to other sorts of issues. And one of the um, main rabble-rousers uh, at this event, and I'll, we'll get to him in, in just a second, uh, is our, uh, our guest today, David Nichols. And I, I first came across his name in a uh, journal called The Nexian, and there was a article with the very appealing title of Criminals and Researchers, Perspectives on the Necessity of Underground Research, which really piqued my interest because there's another David Nichols whose name is spelled slightly differently, who is a very well-established researcher that I did not think would write this sort of article. And so as I was reading, I was going, come on, this can't be the same guy. And then it turns out, of course, that it's not the same guy. Um, David Nichols has been a part of the DMT nexus, the underground research world around uh, DMT for many years. Uh, but a number of years ago, he started to come out more with articles and started giving talks at festivals and psychedelic gatherings. And I was very impressed by, by these talks. They uh, had, a, had a political fire to them that I see all too rarely uh, in the psychedelic world. Uh, even despite the fact that, that so many people who are interested in these things are interested in very, you know, a lot of the complex issues we face and presumably are interested in pushing the boundaries 
of what we say and what we do in relationship to the world. Nonetheless, uh, it was very refreshing uh, to hear David speak and to bring up political issues in a kind of uh, occupy, post-occupy way uh, that in many ways have been uh, ignored or, or not spoken about very much within the current psychedelic environment. And this, of course, needs to change e even more today because the issues in psychedelic science are going to ramp up so intensely as the mainstreaming process continues, as corporations start to sniff out bucks, potentially big bucks, and as more and more people uh, turn towards psychedelic therapy as a possibility for them to heal their own sufferings, which raise very important issues of access, of money, of uh, health care, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it's very important that we keep asking these questions, and it's particularly important that we keep asking these uh, questions from the perspective of the underground, because the underground is an incredibly important part of psychedelic science, of psychedelic culture, and it continues to be so, even in the face of many of the mainstreaming institutions and individuals who want to pretend that psychedelic science was never underground, that you can't have underground science. What kind of science is that? You need institutions. You need a PhD. You need uh, expensive journals that are hidden behind paywalls. But from the perspective of psychedelic science as an underground, we can recognize the, the problems with the, the mainstream way of organizing knowledge in our society. And these issues are brought up uh, very strongly by David and the questions he asked at the uh, recent conference. So with no further ado, David, thanks for joining us on Expanding Mind. Thanks for having me. It's really wonderful to be here. Yeah, that's good, man. It's, I, I, uh, I, uh, again, it was a, it was a real rock'em sock'em weekend. So I, uh, appreciate your, uh, your contributions there. But before we jump into the meat of the matter, I'd like to work our way through a little bit, uh, through some background and context because you've been involved in, uh, what we could call uh, psychedelic citizen science or underground research, uh, for a long time. And you've actually been an underground character for a while, this whole, uh, appearance of you in the sort of world of conferences and social media and, co and visible conflicts is a relatively new thing for you, I know. So I'd, I'd <laughs> like to get some of that that background and um, you know talk about how you how you first discovered uh, or, or became involved with the the, the DMT nexus and, and really what motivated you to plunge as deeply as you have into uh, underground research and uh, the citizen science, particularly around. DMT. Sure. So I, I guess for me, um, you know, this actually touches back on your statement about how there's a, an aversion to, to getting into a lot of this darker political content in these spaces. Because for me, I mean, this literally traces back to my, my first psychedelic experience, which was with uh, uh, Cubensis mushrooms at 18. Um, you know, I was at university. I had a friend who had come across some I was excited to try them, but also at that point, I had been pretty staunchly anti-drug until I discovered cannabis and saw that clearly the narratives around that weren't true, but I, I wasn't sure, you know, the stories I heard about psychedelics and potentials for going crazy and, you know, all the myths, you'll, you'll get the sense that you turned yourself into a glass of orange juice and what happens if you pour yourself out. Um, so I basically spent like two weeks after I found out we had shrooms around, 
um, researching everything I could. I mean, I was on Arrowhead, I was on Wikipedia, I was going through the library and pulling peer-reviewed papers. Um, I think the Hopkins study had like just happened and it was literally at the forefront. And so, uh, you know, most of the research I was pulling was 50 years old, thereabouts. And so I wound up taking an eighth of mushrooms, finding myself in the woods. All of a sudden I'm, I'm having this, you know, incredibly deep presence sort of explained to me cycles of life and death and the intertwinings of all of that, which, which gave way into realizations about capitalism and industrial society and, and the way that all of these things seemed interconnected and, and intertwined in ways where I'd had all of these understandings as unique, uh, individualized critiques that had never seemed so connected to each other. And then sort of over the, the period of time of that mushroom trip before it gave away into maybe 15 or 20 minutes of pure timeless presence, it kind of hit me with the full weight of look at all these terrible things that are happening on the planet. You're part of this. You don't have an option to unplug yourself from it. So if this matters to you, you have to figure out a way to do something about it. And at, the, as at, this, point, imagine, at this point, did but you already had like, Political consciousness, you were already interested in, in critiques of capitalism. You already you already had a kind of did you already have a kind of activist attitude, or did this really spur not only your an integrated way of thinking about how all these issues fit together, but also really actually inspire you to to become more of a of an activist? Um, I would say I had had uh, activist leanings coming from you know reading histories of the Holocaust and being being Jewish and looking at you know these situations. I remember being you know six, seven, eight, and trying to grapple with well, how how can you find yourself in a society that's doing terrible things and do absolutely nothing to stop it? But I certainly hadn't had any sort of real strong activist political consciousness around things like capitalism. I had, I had critiques. I had like, well, this seems like it doesn't really work for everyone. This seems like not even does it not work for everyone, but it's sort of stacked against all these individuals in ways that seem to need to be challenged. But it wasn't, I think it, it, it seemed distant. It seemed, it was a point in my life where, where systemic understandings I think really uh, alienated me in a way where it was like, these things seem so big. How can I possibly engage with them? And I mean, even just, just sitting with the outcome of, of sitting with the experiences of that day, I mean, it's not like I came down from it and was like, okay, great. Like time to go dismantle industrial civilization. <laughs> like like the, the, the impetus was there, but it wasn't, it was still super overwhelming. It was still, um, it seemed like, way too big of a question to, to wrap my mind around. And really what came out of that experience, and, and I go into the full length of that experience on the talk I gave at, at Boom in 2014 called uh, tune on, uh, Turn In, Tune On, uh, bah, sorry, <clears throat> Tune On, Turn On, Tune In, Rise Up. Jesus, sorry about that. <laughs> anyway, that's up on YouTube. I highly recommend it. If, if other people have had glimpses of those political consciousness, um, for me, you know, it took me a while to actually clarify that. It took me a while to, to sit with that. And so what started happening in the wake of that trip was I was in, in all of my university classes uh, on Wikipedia, you know, reading about drugs, reading about psychedelics, reading about acid and, and mushrooms and 
Uh, I hadn't heard of DMT at that point, but I was on Arrowhead looking through uh, not so much experience reports, but you know, doses, information, uh, legality, trying to build up as comprehensive an understanding as possible. And of course, as you start reading through some of these histories, you come across political actors, you come across you know, the weather underground, you come across the Black Panthers and their intersections with Leary, and you come across all these really interesting stories that clearly, to my mind, merge radical politics and psychedelics. And having just come from this experience where I felt like I'd been given such a formative synthesis of radical politics just by consuming this little mushroom with the with whatever information I had inside of me, you know, that, that thread, that commonality sort of always, always was, was just there in, you know, super highlighted font for me. Yeah. Well, I, so, I, I, I want to step, we'll step in on it. Just on a, I'll reflect on that for a second, which is, I think one of the, the issues um, is that we have a, a, a malformed memory of the sixties it is a, you know, and I, having just written about the 60s and 70s in the counterculture, I read a lot of histories and texts, and, and there's there's a very, very common gesture that people make, which is they divide the 60s into two movements. There is the movement, which are is political activism uh, associated with anti-war, becomes, you know, supporting of... Of, of black liberation and different, uh, you know, ethnic and gender liberations, but it's activists. It's on the street. It's engaged. It's political. It's it's real world. It's practical, pragmatic, and and intense and radical. Often, so you know, there's some tensions in that between the more radicals and the more, you know, what we would now think of as progressives. But that is divided very strongly from the hippies, who are the psychedelic people, the the love children, the lifestyle people, the mystics, the spiritual people, the pe- people making music, the people making the aesthetics. And that division is helpful to a point, but where it really uh, misses something important and particularly screws us up now to, to have the kind of conversations that we're talking about now is that there was a third, <laughs> kind of a third rail, if you will, that my uh, my friend and colleague uh, Christian Greer calls psychedelic militancy. And some of the psychedelic militancy took an explicitly left form. Some of it was more anarcho-libertarian or whatever, anarchist. But at the core of it was the idea not just that psychedelics turned you on to the nature of these political problems that then you were called upon to respond to in an activist way, but that the mode of activism itself was psychedelic, whether it was the kind of prankster media pranks of the, um, the yippies, you know, going to like, uh, to, you know, uh, uh, levitate the Pentagon in, ni- in, the, in October of 1967. Uh, you know, that's just absurd, but that absurdity was a way of practicing politics. So when I hear you talk about that and trying to make these connections, um, I, in my mind, I'm like, yeah, I think historians and people in the, in the counterculture and psychedelic people have done a crappy job of articulating and sustaining and revitalizing psychedelic militancy. Oh, and I'm, I'm inclined to agree. And, you know, it took me, it was a long time digging through psychedelic histories before I really even stumbled across the diggers, right? And if we want to con- con- contrast the actions of, of groups like the diggers who were not so interested in levitating the Pentagon, but, you know, instead were engaged in, we could say, sort of the, the prototypes of, of programs that we still see 
now in the more crusty punk and, and anarchist scenes such as Food Not Bombs, right, where they were they were engaged with projects that I would say were more in line with like the Black Panthers life raft programs, right? How do we get food to folks in the community who need it? How do we get you know, material goods that are produced in such abundance in capitalist societies, but then denied from entire uh, sections of the populace in order to make sure that they maintain their appropriate value, you know, sort of how do we subvert that? And so for me, um, you know, I was super drawn into all of the, the, um, the societal differences, the cultural differences. I mean, I was a, at that point, I was uh, at school for anthropology and political science and so I realized that, hey, you know, if I take an explicitly ethno-botanically focused track within um, the anthropology program I was doing, that I could find a couple of uh, advisors who were willing to take that on. One of my anthropology advisors was uh, uh, had very close connections to David Graeber. And so the sort of explicitly anarchist politics and some of the research I was interested in pursuing from the political Bain didn't turn her off. Uh, similarly, I had a couple of hardcore uh, ethnobotany nerds who had somehow found a spot. You know, there's one pre professor in particular who uh, had found a spot at this university and was willing to let me do my own independent study through her. Uh, at the time, I was working for a botanist doing databasing. And so sort of all of those things combined in a way where I had access to um, really helpful advisors. Uh, I had access to resources through the university. And uh, I had uh, the desire to sort of find that legitimacy, right? I at that point I was super interested in the in the work Maps was doing. Um, it was like, oh my god, how are these folks, you know, starting to get attention to this stuff? How are they able to play these games in such a way where um, you know psychedelic isn't a dirty word? Because I saw the way that I, if I talked about ethnobotany, nobody really questioned it. It was just like, oh, here's some quirky plant nerd who's, you know, looking into phytochemical comp. What, what even is that? You know, and all I'm saying is I'm looking at the chemicals that are in, in plants. You know, I happen to be interested in the psychoactive ones, but, you know, using that appropriately uh, academic, academically focused language, it allowed me to sort of mask a lot of my real intentions and sort of find the people who knew enough that when they understood what I was saying, I could see whether they were on board or if I needed to make myself look more appropriate. Um, and so I was able to sort of Trojan horse myself into this position. And as that was going on, I had discovered Terrence McKenna by complete and utter fluke. I had downloaded this huge drug repository and uh, had it on my iPod on shuffle. And I hear this funny little voice come over my car speakers one day talking about machine elves and stoned apes and DMT. And I figured I wouldn't find DMT until like well into my 40s based on the way he was talking about it. You know, fast forward uh, 18 months and, you know, there I was in my kitchen pulling like white uh, translucent crystals out of the freezer. And um, <laughs> really the way that I found the DMT nexus was that my, my sort of honeymoon period with DMT was um, daily use, sometimes multiple times a day. Eventually that faded into maybe near daily use. I mean, and this was over a period of months where I was going for breakthrough. I was going like, I'd, I'd have a breakthrough experience. It would feel so, I don't know, organic, natural, something inside me like recognized components of these places as home, as places I knew, but I'd forgotten. And there was such a wealth of information that every time I came back, it was like it had 
fueled all of these additional ontological questions. And there were never any answers. And there was never, you know, sometimes I'd, I'd get crazy theories about, oh, maybe this ties into that. And But it was never any real actionable knowledge. It was fascinating just from a how is it possible to experience these things. But, you know, after a few months of that, I think it was probably about three months in, um, I was sitting on my computer and I wasn't expecting any sort of answer or response, but just sort of to get the material out of me, I was like typing into Google, how is it it possible to encounter disincarnate beings on DMT? And I hit enter. And the first page that comes up is from the DMT Nexus. And this was, this was like a couple months, I think, after they had switched from DMT World and had dropped a lot of the front-facing stuff and really just become a forum. And sure enough, I found that here was a community of folks that, that not only were they not dismissing questions and, and bizarre outlandish theories, but they were taking a really critical, really uh, engaged approach to having discussions around what might this be. And for me, that was fascinating. And, and I jumped right in and, you know, you had to get promoted. And so the easiest way I thought to get promoted was just to start helping out with extraction advice because the texts that were available at that time, they were hosted on Arrowhead. They were really outdated. They were kind of dangerous and had a whole bunch of uh, unnecessary steps. Meanwhile, you could find better pictorials on maybe even shroomery. Um, the Nexus had its own texts, of course, but the understandings and awareness of where to go and what to do weren't really there. And the thing that I've tried to always stress is if you understand the extraction principles and why you're doing what you're doing, you don't really need a tech. I mean, a a tech is helpful for maybe the amounts that you'll want for any particular material. But if you understand the processes, there's there's no need to go, I have to have this person's exact directions. And so that eventually, seeing, seeing all of these people engaged on extraction and refining extractions and all these other things, it was immediately apparent what a community of engaged, scientifically oriented and critically thinking individuals could do. And I was literally watching it in front of my my eyes as some of the early developments into um, extraction techniques, I won't go too into depth, but using like fumaric acid for creating salts of DMT, there were a couple methods that sort of bubbled up out of that community and a whole bunch of conversations. There were questions about in increasing efficiency and, and hoping to uh, improve upon the yields that folks were seeing. Because um, this was also in the environment of a lot of the Mimosa Hostilis vendors getting cracked down on. There were it was sort of a constant cat and mouse game. This was before the major bust that I think happened in 2011. Um, so at that point, you know, there was sort of a desire to figure out, can we make sure that everybody is maximizing their yields? Because we really have and had a, a DIY ethos where we didn't want to see people selling DMT. I mean, we know that to some extent that will always be a, a reality of the way that our society is set up, but at least as long as these are the conditions that exist. But um, we felt it was really important to empower people to extract their own, to do it in as safe a manner as possible. And so once, once that's your approach, you start to see these sort of logical things come out of it, right? Like if you're going to encourage people to extract their own in an attempt to sort of decommodify and put powers directly in their hands, that sort of implies that, hey, well, couldn't we look into growing our own? Couldn't we look into creating sort of a decentralized network of ethnobotanical mutual aid? And so over the years, actually, um, there's a, a sister site to the Nexus that uh, we encourage people to check out called Share the Seeds. 
it's it's folks who are literally propagating their own uh, medicinal and, and and drug based plants and and pretty much um, most of the folks on there engage in sort of share and share like ethos. They'll maybe they'll ask you to cover shipping, but the whole point of it is to get these plants propagated by as many people as possible, especially as we see encroachment um, around things like iboga uh, and and the potential loss of of these species from their uh, traditional habitats. And, and obviously there's, there's concerns around biopiracy and, and how are people engaging with, with these plants. And I think that getting into the citizen science of it uh, or the underground research, it was sort of necessitated just by uh, having a, a sense of these experiences seem so important and so foundational to what it means or what it could mean to be human, to be able to reflect on yourself, to be able to try to engage with other people in, in loving and compassionate ways, in ways that to me have always seemed like the psychedelic experience has always seemed political to me because some of the most consistent messages I've got and I've encountered in the literature, whether it's about love or ecological integrity or, or the importance of, you know, caring for those around you seems so fundamentally at odds with the way our society has been structured. And so it's like, how could the use of these things not be political? Um, yeah. But, and and another fee, another feature just to kind of riff on a little bit. And, and I've, I mean, I've had, um, I, I've, as I mentioned in the last week's show, I've just been lucky to have uh, friendships with some, you know, really uh, amazing ethnobotanists, not even just in the, in the psychoactive realm, but just in all, you know, across ethnobotany totally. and, and, and finding the kind of ethos of seed sharing and the way in which there's a non capital motivation that is simultaneously a organic natural, you know, event in natural history, i.e. you distribute seeds. There, there's more of them everywhere. They're less likely, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a very, or, you know, it's part of, it's like humans supporting a certain aspect of natural history. And at the same time, it's often mirrored in a kind of politics, a kind of way of, of relating to others. And then when you in- introduce the internet, you get this weird kind of double doubling effect where, the aspect of the internet, especially of online forums, the distributed nature of it, the, rel- the relatively non-hierarchical nature of, of code and connection, uh, even the sort of loose limb structure of many of these communities, they all seem to mirror in some way something about what's actually happening on the on the organic level as well. So there's a there's an interesting kind of integration, but not towards everything becoming one. It's like integration of these levels through the ideals of distribution and decentralization. Uh, so it's, it's a very, it, 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 it's like the different levels of the practice resonate uh, in a very psychedelic way. For sure. And I would say, you know, I don't remember who was talking about these concepts a, a long time ago, but, you know, it's almost like if we contrast that notion of one with all, right, that sort of uh, the, as opposed to like an individually bound whole versus the unbound entirety um, you know, like I think that 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 principle and looking at, you know, again, all of these things sort of presuppose all of these other components that you don't even realize until you start digging around in it. So, you know, as I said, here's here's this community that's trying to figure out how can we decommodify some of this? How can we promote these um, these ideals and, and what we think is uh, 
a preferred way of engaging with some of these plants and compounds. And then, you know, at the same time, ayahuasca is kind of going mainstream to some extent, or at least pop culture, right? I think Sting had just written something about it at that point, and um, a few other things were going on. And, and suddenly there's, there's so much more interest in the ethnobotanical marketplace where you'd had a few really well-known vendors and, um, you know, I think at that time, Bouncing Bear Botanicals was super big. That was before Crystal Cole and whoever else played State's Evidence and, and you know, contributed to uh, Sloan going through real, real tough legal stuff. Um, but looking at some of the other vendors that were, were popping up, we started to see places that were offering vines, uh, ayahuasca vines that seemed a little odd. Um, and we had had a, a member who was well situated in, um, in a, an analytical lab and basically said, hey, if we can arrange a network through our community to get some of these homegrown specimens and, and ethnobotanical marketplace specimens into the lab, uh, I can generate the, you know, I can run them through the analytical machinery. At that time, it was mostly gas chromatography and mass spectrometry. Uh, and we can generate the, the mass spectrometry files and sort of look into them ourselves, see what's there. And I said, yes, absolutely. You know, let me know if, if you want me to sort of collect some stuff in the U.S. and send it your way, we can do that. If it makes sense to have it sent directly to the lab. And so we sort of started setting up this infrastructure where we had folks who were living in areas of the world where they were able to collect wild samples or where they had pretty large private ethnobotanical collections. We had members who had ordered from a whole variety of, of different vendors and were willing to go through their orders and sort of break out a little bit because you don't need much for analytical purposes. I mean, you know, we'd have people send between like one and, and five grams of vine, which is, you know, nothing. And it's way, way, way more than, than we'd need for any of the analysis. I mean, a gram is overkill. Um, and so we started generating all of this data. And uh, actually, in order, to, in order to, to get the database that, um, that we used, it's the NIST database. It's like National Institute for Standards and something else. And um, that database, the license for it is super expensive. Uh, so we found a copy that we were able to pirate. It was like the 2008 uh, database. So we were already four years out of date or something when, when we really were getting, when the project was well underway and, and in full swing. Um, and, you know, fast forward to today, I just looked the other day, the, the current version, the current uh, license for that software is $4,300. Um, <laughs> so like, you know, it's well beyond our means as, as people who have no budget whatsoever, who are literally running this software on their own computers um, just to, to try to get a sense of what we're seeing. And yet we started putting this data out and um, we saw right off the bat, we saw uh, some of the vendors started posting the, the spectra to their website, um, kind of like to advertise, hey, look, we've got the goods. Funny enough, at least one of those vendors was also one of the people selling a bunch of misidentified or unidentified vines. And really the way that we saw it was less about empowering the vendors to advertise for themselves and more about being able to give the community a heads up saying, hey, like, you know, this red ayahuasca vine only has harmine. It has no harmaline. Yeah. Or well, I mean, this, what, one way of saying that is, is also like that it gives you a sense of 
the complexity of how how science and and you know I don't want to use the word regulation, but how accountability works in complex For sure. society, that, you know, and so you're actually serving as part of the mechanism of accountability in this particular case that had to do with some hard data. Uh, and that's a, in a way what we're talking about and what I mean, we should probably kind of start moving towards the open science stuff because, um, you know, that's a really pressing issue right now. And in a way, it's also part of this idea of like, how do you use science how do you recognize the the stacked deck against uh, underground or citizen science or advocacy groups that are not based in large institutions, don't have large budgets? You know, you get into those issues um, really fast. But part of the the idea is to think about it as a as a system. That there's a system where there's there's vendors, there's information, there's technologies that can be distributed. There are advisory boards, there's ways of testing, and then all of these different elements all kind of, you know, weave together. And, and part of what activism means in this space is to keep that ecology diverse enough and, and distribute the power enough between these different bodies that the whole thing, it's kind of like just checks and balances the way you learn in you know, what, what, what makes the United States government sort of function in some ways. And it's a good ideal. <laughs> sure. You know, we should still yeah, think yeah, about yeah, it as a good ideal. You know, it's harder totally. to become a demagogue in, in United States history, although we're clearly moving, you know, showing that it's not impossible. But, right. you know, that idea of checks and balances is also really a way to think about how science can function in, in society and in the tension between, you know, institutional research, academia, corporations or for-profit outfits, which are always going to be part of the picture, and advocacy groups. Um, so all of that's kind of a, a way to, to, to lead up to this uh, recent statement on, on open science for, for psychedelic medicines uh, and, and practices, um, which was uh, written by or, you know, sort of spearheaded. Uh, by Bob Jesse, who's a, a an important figure who gets his due in the in the new Michael Pollan book. I was kind of happy to see uh, Bob Jesse appear there because he's sort of a quiet figure, uh, and even though he's he's done a, a lot in the last couple of decades to um, further psychedelic science, he was really instrumental in in kind of working behind the scenes to make sure that the the Johns Hopkins study in, in 2006 came out. He's always been interested in psychedelics, not just as medicines, but as also as amplifiers and spiritual vehicles. And how do you get that into the regulatory model? It's very difficult to do. And so he's a, he's a very interesting figure and he came and he felt compelled to come out with the statement. So just, just, just begin, uh, just tell us a little bit about the statement, what was motivating it, how you found out about it, how, how it uh, articulated some of the concerns that, that you've been having more recently as well. Totally. So, I mean, my, uh, my awareness of the statement was kind of, I had a friend who was uh, aware that the statement was sort of being authored and, and coming into being. And they were aware that I had just been at this event in Australia, actually where we met, right? Entheogenesis Australis. And um, they had been made privy to some of the statements made by uh, Rick Doblin and some of the discussions and debates that, that he and I had gotten into while there. And there had been, they were also, as I understand it, aware of the rise of Compass and Eleusis and some other players who were sort of sneaking around the shadows and felt that if there was going to be a push for 
um, the privatization, the, the commodification, the true hardcore corporate commercialization of psychedelics, like it was like they were seeing the very beginnings of that push. Let, let's and just stop. Was, let's stop right here. And like, I just inform people because, you know, frankly, before this weekend, I had heard of Compass. I had heard of Elusis, but I hadn't really thought about them very deeply or what they were up to. I, I mean, I, obviously this is an inevitable process given, you know, the mainstreaming and the, the, the uh, decriminalization of these compounds There's going to be, cor you know, corporate players, but let's talk a little bit about those specific folks just to inform people uh, sure. about who are Compass before, and who are Elusis. Before we get into that, I just wanted to point out that the four, the four tenets of the, uh, the statement on open science Basically, just deal with um, the first one is dealing with intellectual and scientific integrity, just asking signatories to report the truth um, that even if they're not happy with the results that they're seeing, that they make sure that they're not sugarcoating the experiences and the, the outcomes and the data that they're that they're generating as scientists. The second one is dealing with uh, issues of being in service and that as much as we live within capitalism and as a result need to be paid for our labor. That, that ultimately the point of this work is not to put profits over people, but is in fact to, um, to work towards putting these compounds out uh, and make, them, make the information available to the public at large because it benefits all of us. Um, the third one is dealing with open science and open praxis, which basically says that you will make all of your data, um, you know, materials, knowledge uh, available um, without engaging in, in looking for some sort of commercial advantage through them. So obviously there's going to be significant issues when you're talking about doing research within the context of the research institution. And there are barriers to some of that that are going to come up. But the, the notion was that these things don't get privatized so that a particular entity can, again, start making serious money off of them. And that uh, ultimately, and then I guess the final one was was dealing with non-interference and that it was really important to put these things in the public domain. And coming from that citizen science background, I mean, it's been really interesting talking a little bit with some folks on on the Nexus where they're like, well, this really doesn't affect us, right? We're, we're in the underground. We don't do this. We don't do that. And I was like, yeah, but consider how much information, how many understandings we get from peer-reviewed papers. We get those peer-reviewed papers because they're being generated by, by research institutions that then put them into the public domain by publishing them. And so, you know, yeah, some people go through the paywalls and purchase them. Other people pirate them. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, whether you're paying or pirating, that information is already out there. If you think about that in a corporate context, if instead of publishing as peer-reviewed, you keep that as an internal corporate document, uh, it's a lot harder for other folks to be able to get their hands on it, to learn from it. And it may not even be something that you intend on on publishing. It could be something that's totally irrelevant to your work, but that even if it doesn't present a challenge to your work, it might be something that might materially benefit one of your competitors. So why put it out there? And so in that situation, we, all, we would all lose. And so players like Compass and Eleusis... I know a lot more about Compass than Eleusis. Uh, I'll say real quick about Eleusis. It's a company that is run by a guy named Shlomi Raz. Um, they've done a really good job of trying to keep their, their name out of the press. Um, they were circulating leaflets and flyers in, I think it was in the Bay Area a year or two ago. They've already got a patent out, uh, I think it was as of 2015, for uh, LSD for Alzheimer's. I don't know. I think they had another patent application, maybe. Um, but again, like you can, you can start 
researching online. You can look into Shlomi Raz. You can look into Eleusis. That's E-L-E-U-S-I-S. Um, and so they've, they've managed to do a, a much better job of keeping quiet. Compass is a venture capitalist-backed um, for-profit company that is being run by a, a guy named George Goldsmith and I think his partner, Katya. I don't remember her last name. Um, but they have, they have several venture capitalist funds that are helping to finance their endeavor, which includes um, Peter Thiel's uh, Thiel Capital. And so basically, they stepped onto the playing field with this intention of doing, they, they told a bunch of people, they had a nonprofit organization that was, I think, uh, set up in California. And their plan was to engage in hospice treatment for, um, it's set up in the Isle of Man using psilocybin as a, a way of um, sort of combating depression through end of life care. And they approached Catherine McLean and a bunch of other psychedelic researchers um, from a distance, it appears that, that what happened is that they had set up this nonprofit and they, um, they were looking to basically mine these folks for their, their information, their connections, their networks, their protocols. And again, this is just what it appears like based on the fact that this nonprofit existed for about 18 months. It sounds like they, they were able to get, um, get their hands on pretty much all of the things that they were looking for. And then all of a sudden, you know, they crunched the numbers. They realized that they could actually get some assistance from um, some European regulatory organizations. And all of a sudden, switched to a for-profit model, announced that they would be um, setting up, you know, that, that their for-profit would be operating out of the UK. And folks like Catherine McLean and others were, as I understand it, maybe not even told that that was a thing. Um, you know, there was just a, a total radio silence. And then Compass appeared with this whole board of, of directors that included a bunch of pharmaceutical execs, you know, folks from Johnson & Johnson, Janssen, uh, former heads of the EMA, like the European Medicine Agency. It's basically the FDA's counterpart. I mean, you can go through, and I would, I would suggest anybody looking at this, you know, don't take my word for it. Go through the Compass website. They've got you know, there's this guy on there, Thomas Longren, who was the former head of the EMA. And what ended up happening was he, he left the EMA, but it turned out two months prior to him leaving, he, um, he set up a consultancy. So literally while he was the head of the EMA, he set up a consulting uh, agency or consulting firm. And, um, you know, then two months later he leaves there was like a, an initial sort of look into what had gone on and there was some correspondence and one of the, the regulatory bodies was like, hey, this, this looks a little odd. Uh, and then I think it was, uh, yeah, here we go. December 19, 2011, um, Corporate Europe Observatory put out a, a statement saying, ex-head of Europe's drug regulator set up consultancy while still in office. And basically runs through how, how this guy had set up Pharma Executive Consulting Limited within the headquarters of NDA Regulatory Science Limited two months before he left the EMA. And so they basically go through and, and sort of detail why this is an issue and, and what they see about, you know, such a high profile revol revolving door case and, and how it highlights all of the loopholes that exist within the, the staff regulations. And so 
when I started digging around, I mean, I literally came at this. I, I pulled the nonprofit 990s. I looked through the, the Compass uh, page and, and started piecing together the fact that it looked like an organization that was not only attempting to build on this massive body of open source or, or generally made public information that, that this huge lineage of psychedelic researchers had made available for the good of humanity. And, you know, maybe at the cost of a single paywall for a, a paper or the cost of a single book in the case of, you know, any of these larger published works. And suddenly, you know, here was this group that was saying, oh, we're ready to do a phase three clinical trial based on the efforts that all of these other groups have done. And um, without having a whole bunch of, of psychedelically trained uh, and, and experienced um, sitters and, and, you know, everything that, that, um, that the Johns Hopkins team and the NYU team and UCSF, like these are research institutions that have been working on these matters for so long that have developed the protocols of how to do it with relative safety that have figured out how do you engage with people having these, in some cases, incredibly traumatic you know, re-experiencings of, of, you know, war traumas and, and sexual traumas and childhood, you know, uh, traumas. And, and instead, right, we had this, this organization that really knew nothing about what they were getting into saying, well, look, all these other people have been able to do it. We've been able to talk with all these other people. You know, we think that, that we should be able to do it based on this. And when you see it, who they've stacked their board with, from the outside, it certainly looks like like there's an attempt to subvert the regulators, yes. right? Why else do you get a bunch of pharmaceutical executives and people yeah. who are- well, let, me, let me cut in here just kind of, just to, partly in the interest of time is that ah, you know, one way of hearing what you're saying is like, oh, capitalism as usual. We know how pharmacies mm -hmm. work. We know how revolving doors work. In some sense, if these things are going to become available legally, somehow, whatever, like we can expect some degree of capitalism as usual to start to start to you know rear its its ugly head, and so the the statement on open science is an attempt to maintain the the spirit and the the commitments of a of an of open science, which is something you can describe both in terms of you know independent people being able to access this information, and also in terms of the ways in which research is at least ideally done uh, inside institutions with ultimately the, the, the greater public good uh, in mind. And again, just sort of in the interest of, of, uh, of time, and we can maybe sure. have some time at the end, one of the signatories of the open science, there were, there were a couple of interesting ones, um, because they, it turned out that however they however cool they might be in their own practice, uh, which is, you know, another question, uh, they had signed this open science statement with these values and, 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 and um, sort of pro protocols or that, that you mentioned or intentions. Uh, and yet they were also doing work with Compass. So one example is uh, Bill Richards, who was a Johns Hopkins guy. We've had him on the show. He's an incredibly lovely man, you know, for just, sure, just like a, a saint-like clinician. And so, you know, he uh, no doubt genuinely believes these ideas. And yet from his perspective, there's probably like, well, look, they're, if they're actually, if this big corporation is actually going to do it, let's just make sure that the clinicians who are, who are actually dealing with people are good so more people can can have a good experience. And then the, a bigger example in some ways more with more consequence uh, is Rick Doblin, the, you know, the head of MAPS and, and sort of bringing MAPS, like so MAPS wants to also be a signatory in some sense 
through Rick Doblin to this statement, and yet they they too have had sort of very productive relationships with with Compass, and maybe you can tell us uh, the details. And essentially, what your rabble rousing has been is is just standing is going is this does this make sense? Can we really sign this and really believe these ideals in in, in open science in the face of coming for profit? motivations with all of the usual crap that goes on with with capitalism can you really support those those ideals and at the same time be dealing with this with with compass so that was really what you were bringing forward you know talk about what's important there talk about uh how you know how you felt uh this conversation with rick that happened at the at the conference went um you know we don't have tons of time but you know (laughs) give it your best shot Yeah, I'll do my best. So I think the first thing that feels really important to say is when you read the the statement on open science, I think uh, it goes without question when you read the document. The whole point of it is to set up and establish and maintain the material conditions necessary to engage in and preserve open science, right? That like the point of signing on to this was because uh, Bob and other folks saw that we were about to see encroachment into this field in a way that jeopardized really the future of psychedelic research, um, at at least as far as it it being able to remain open and accessible to to many of us. And so um, in in reading that, you know, uh, I know uh, to my mind, there's just no other way to understand the document than, than to say the reason that you signed this is because you believe in open science and you are committing to working with people that that fundamentally uh, exist and and operate in ways that contribute to the maintaining of those conditions. The same way that when you sign the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the reason that you do that is to maintain the material conditions of non-proliferation so that we don't wind up with a ton of nukes and end up, you know, bombing ourselves off the face of the planet. Um, <laughs> it's not really good if it's just a PR stunt, right? At that point, it doesn't actually protect anyone. So one of the big things that comes up is that Compass is arranged and organized in such a way that they can't sign the document. They, you know, they're a venture capitalist-backed group. Ultimately, they need to provide their investors with a return on their investment, which means that they'll have to, at some point, provide an exit strategy, such as an initial public offering or a big pharma buyout. And when they do that, um, all of that intellectual property that they've generated will wind up in the hands of a big pharma. And that means that it will be privatized, it will be sequestered, it will be unaccessible to the rest of us. Similarly, Compass is setting themselves up to be a vertically integrated company, as I understand that. So that means that they will control all of the the mechanisms of production from synthesis through therapy, that they will be able to use that control to alienate and, and block other people from entering that market. And that fundamentally, at the end of the day, they'll be able to manipulate prices. So they'll be able to engage in what we call value-based pricing. So currently, if, you know, uh, if depressive therapy costs an insurer $10,000 a year and Compass can afford to sell uh, psilocybin therapy for $2,000 a year, why would they sell it for $2,000 if they could sell it for $8,000? Because they've got no competition because they're vertically integrated and can keep others out. So at that point, the insurance company says, well, hell, 8,000 is still cheaper than 10,000. That sounds great. So people are inclined to say it's a win-win. But if you look at the actual results of that, 
you know, we're the folks that pay insurance premiums. So, you know, we're the ones who, instead of paying the premium on a therapy that costs $2,000, we're paying a premium on what costs $8,000. And so we will likely get stuck with higher premiums. Now, that's not to say that I'm in favor of mainstreaming psychedelics to the point where we're all paying through, um, through our insurers for psilocybin for depression so that we can continue to be ground down in these systems that are depressing without actually addressing the systems themselves. But even if we take the sort of harm reduction arguments that Rick Doblin and, and, and other folks are putting out there as far as, oh, we have to engage with these people because, you know, um, it's inevitable. And unless we do, like, we have to do this because that will keep their, their therapists and other people safer because they'll have the proper protocols. You know, to my mind, what should have happened is as soon as all of these researchers who were expressing their misgivings about Compass, who had signed the statement, articulated those to each other, the entire group of signatories should have come together essentially as a cooperators club. And they should have said, look, we've got all the clout. We've got all the specialized information. We've got all the protocols and the knowledge. We are not willing to work with anybody else who comes into this uh, into this terrain. And the reason for that is as soon as we start providing them with that information, that will help to solidify their own legitimacy. And fundamentally, these are people who are going to be looking to put profits over people. These are organizations that are going to find ways of minimizing therapist time, of switching from having an actual therapist to using artificial intelligence. I mean, there's a company called Seven Cups that is mentioned as a partner on the Compass website. Seven Cups is uh, it's a, an AI. Um, the actual write-up says, Seven Cups has developed a training bot, which is used by our therapists to develop and practice their active listening skills. Now, not only have we not seen AI that passes the Turing test and can actually present as human, which would bring its own host of issues for sure, like the notion of training your therapist on an active listening bot seems absurd, but that's the kind of cost-cutting measures I would suggest we can expect. Well, and there's an, there's another element that also comes around to this to the which we don't have time to go into, but I just it feels important to mention um, uh, uh, it, that also relates to, to the issues raised at the conference, which is of course a broader social uh, justice problem in terms of access. That it's not just that our premiums uh, go up because we're, we're we're helping align the you know the the, the, the you know the coffers of these for profit companies, but that For it sure. just generally distorts the cost and availability of, um, of of therapy, which we can see already now. Let's say in the in the ketamine therapy market, where you know, yeah, you, it's going to cost you a grand no, to take a absolutely. dose of something that costs literally a dollar. Uh, and so, whoa! If you're if you're at all interested in access and and the, the the communities that that should have access to the if they're if if the hype's as good as it says it is. Then, it, then obviously a lot of people, our world could be made much better. I'm not sure sometimes if the, if the hype is gets deserves all of it, but in any case, the point is is that there's um, it's one of the things that's the the tensions that I've seen. The point to make about this is that I think, and I can't speak for put words in his mouth, but I think if you asked Rick at the Doblin at the end of the day, Rick, why are you still are are you so cheery about dealing with with these guys because i you know i think you have good intentions i don't necessarily agree to, with the way you pursue them but i think you have good intentions he would say at the end of the day it helps get more of the medicine to more people 
And I think what's different between that perspective and the kinds of perspectives you're talking about is not just about what's your opinions of capitalism, blah, blah, blah. It's the tension between an individually based idea of psychedelic therapy and psychedelic transformation and one that is necessarily also structural, systematic, ecological, and political in the broader sense. And so we're, we're sure. it's, it's like we get to see that tension between you know individual consumerism, sent you know de rooted soul person solving their own psychological problems versus looking at psychedelics as things that enter into systems, into ecologies, into cultures, into relations between people and things and and systems or in well, institutions. And, and I would say that's one of the reasons why people have heard me talking so much about Peter Thiel, because Peter Thiel's vision for society, if you read particularly the speech he gave to the Cato Institute in 2009, his, his vision for society is one that actually creates the socioeconomic drivers that increase military enlistment. You know, like uh, lack of social safety nets, the fact that you can get a much higher salary, starting salary with a high school diploma or GED if you do join the military rather than private sector. And so, like, if 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 this is about, you know, I, I challenged Rick, as you saw back at EGA, to offer some sort of systemic engagement with how MDMA for PTSD stops the drivers of enlistment, and he just couldn't do it. It, it just, he clearly hadn't considered it. And so, you know, the notion that if MAPS is going to say, hey, we're invested in in working with healing soldiers from their, their traumas, you know, I would suggest that a core part of that work is figuring out how do we stop the actual causes of those traumas? Because otherwise, you know, while all the therapists go on and on and on about how psychedelics are great because they actually present errors rather than symptomatic treatments, when we look at it on the societal level, what we see is psychedelic therapies being used as symptomatic treatments for society's ills, where we treat the traumas that, that, militarism creates or we treat the depression that, that capitalism and, and being in an alienating, isolating, atomizing society creates. And then we stick all of those individuals back into it. So as much as much as I take issue with the fact that Max is sharing sites with uh, Compass and, and you could say is kind of subsidizing, you know, the nonprofit is subsidizing the for-profits training through those site sharings, or the fact that Compass signed an exclusivity agreement with Onyx uh, for, for procuring psilocybin, which could be seen or could be understood as hamstringing all of these other researchers like folks at uh, NYU or UCSF or Johns Hopkins, if they wanted okay. to get material from Onyx. You know, those are those are issues. But if we look at the systemic stuff that's going on, there's no consideration of how can psychedelics actually plug back into these structures that are, are doing so much damage to so many of us as well as the environment. Around OK, them. we're going to have to stop there. We could keep rolling. This was a great conversation. I knew it would be too short, but just want to thank you again, David, for joining us on Expanding Mind. Thanks so much for having me. All right, folks. Uh, Till next week. Keep your minds open. Mm -hmm.